welcome uh, 2022. Uh, we did last year um, the general surgical postgraduate approach to the head and neck anatomy, the sort of level of head and neck anatomy I would expect of fellowship candidates really or equivalents in your particular uh, country to know the surgical anatomy and the operative surgery as well as the radiologic anatomy of the head and neck. This year we're beginning with the upper limb, so for those keeping score that will be AUL, anatomy of the upper limb, this one's the introduction, so AUL1. Um, I'm hoping that anyone <coughs> who is listening to these podcasts or downloading them uh, is able uh, to support an atopod. Um, you can do so um, simply that will allow us to provide these in a professional studio to get some better equipment. So it's kind of like a crowdfunding approach. And if we could get those to support an antibody, I'll speak about this a little bit at the end of the uh, of this uh, podcast. But you can do so uh, by looking at patron.podbean.com slash anatopod. That's all in capitals A-N-A-T-O. P-O-D, that's patron.podbean.com slash anatopod. And that would be uh, very much appreciated. Um, this is really just an introduction uh, to the upper limb anatomy, an overview, if you like. But the aim through the upper limb and through as we go through later uh, this year in podcasts, the anatomy of the lower limb will be to show some kind of structural and particularly uh, vascular or neurovascular uh, similarities or homologues between the developing upper limb and lower limb, why the anatomy is as it is. And I think if you understand that where there are similarities, it allows you to get a better focus on the structure or the infrastructure of each limb, how each limb is constructed, its flexor and extensor compartments or other compartments. And uh, this, there is some considerable neurovascular homology and it means that it's easier to study, more understandable and therefore easier to remember. I think the first point that's required is to understand that the limb in this case, we're talking about the upper limb is a collection of compartments, but it's the same in the lower limb, each with its own neurovascular supply. And these arrangements have really specific surgical and operative implications. The muscular orientation belies the simplicity, if you like, of the glenohumeral movement and creates, in effect, a much more complicated thoracoacromial articulation. And so that means we have to understand the muscles in a different way. In overview, there are muscles that originate from the vertebral column or the axial skeleton, if one prefers, and which go to the arm. That is, they have a humeral attachment. Uh, and these are such as the pectoralis major, the latissimus dorsi, and these act as major arm guy ropes, if you will, one flexing and the other extending the shoulder. Uh, but both of them, of course, function to medially rotate the shoulder and to adduct it. Um, each is innovated, of course, by the brachial plexus and taking an axial origin, although migrating considerably, but still maintaining their embryologic connection to that plexus. Note, for example, the wide expanse and origin 
and the small focused insertion for those teachers who don't like the idea of talking about muscle origins and insertions I think they're still important and there are equally muscles that run of course from the scapula to the humerus and these are of course the short rotators the subscapularis the supraspinatus the infraspinatus the teres minor and as a link between these the first group and the second group of muscles there is that group of muscles that runs from the axial skeleton which includes the ribs uh, to the scapula or the clavicle and these include such muscles as the trapezius the pectoralis minor the levator scapulae the serratus anterior the subclavius the rhomboids and so this is the way of understanding in a sense the thoracoacromial articulation later we'll go through the sternoclavicular joint the acromioclavicular joint and their kind of reciprocal action but uh, the muscular arrangement filling this area in has this thoracochromial connection as, as I've said before this axial to humeral connection like guy ropes um, pec major and lap dorsi the axial to scapular connection the scapular humeral connection as an intermediary the scapular is a sort of way station in that way thinking about it the pectoralis minor is important because it has landmark importance not because of its clinical function but it's invested in the continuation of the investing layer of deep cervical fascia it's really interrupted only by the clavicle which then continues on as the important clavipectoral fascia now an understanding of that fascia is really critical when you're performing an axillary dissection in breast cancer for example or in melanoma uh, as well and in appreciating the sort of layout of the axillary artery the levels of an axillary lymphadenectomy you have to understand the anatomy of the pectoralis minor in order to appreciate that and I'll, at the relevant points go into this in far more detail but for now appreciate the strategic importance of the pectoralis minor muscle which takes its origin from the outer surface of the third, fourth and fifth ribs, although, like many of these things, this muscle can take a higher rib origin, where it's said to be prefixed, or a lower rib origin, where it's referred to as postfixed. Now, when we get down into the arm, or the brachium, there's a relatively simple uh, separation by the medial and lateral intermuscular septum into an anterior or flexor compartment and a posterior or extensor compartment. Now the septa are worth really understanding because there are nerves that pierce them as they make their own way into the specific forearm compartments. And equally the compartments of the arm have specific controlling or compartmental nerves. Now in the leg this arrangement is more complicated as my aim as I said to discuss where in the upper and the lower limbs there's some anatomic homology. But in the lower limb, there's the addition and the overlap of the adductor, adductor compartment and its nerve, the obturator, with the flexor aspect, the hamstrings, so that the fascial septi in the lower limb and indeed the deep fascia of the lower limb is more complicated and is complicated also by the saphenofemoral junction. Well, who cares about all this stuff? It's actually important that we understand this rather fundamental difference in the formation of the lower limb when compared with the upper limb. And because this is an introductory session, we can afford to spend a little time on that because it explains the neurology perfectly. 
in the upper limb as the limb bud comes out, so does the primitive brachial plexus. And the plexus, indeed any plexus, represents the ventral rami, and that allows the anterior arm and forearm, for that matter, to be innervated by the anterior divisions of those anterior rami. But in the lower limb, as it develops, it drags the lumbar and the lumbosacral plexi down with it. But the limb rotates through 180 degrees, such, as the, such that the flexor muscles of the thigh and the hamstrings lie at the back. And therefore, as they're supplied by the sciatic nerve, or if you prefer embryologically, we can call it the ischiatic nerve, the sciatic nerve is represented at the back of the thigh by the anterior divisions of L4, 5, S1, 2, 3. So that everything at the back is the anterior divisions of the lumbosacral plexus. And by contrast, obviously, the front of the thigh, which is the quadriceps, is innervated by the femoral nerve, which is the posterior division of the lumbar plexus, L1, 2, 3. Got it? I'll go into this in far more detail as we go along in our podcast, but for now, see if you can appreciate this fundamental difference between the upper limb and the lower limb. When we get down to the hand, there are actually 11 separate compartments, but we don't really think of it that way. We look at it as a palmer and a dorsal surface and infer information concerning the nerves and the vessels accordingly. But our understanding here is critical to the management, for example, of hand sepsis, and I'll convey the operative relevance of all of this as we go and when we get down there. For those keeping score, by the way, the 11 compartments in the hand include the four dorsal interossei, the three volar interossei, the thena space, the hypothena space, the adductor, adductor, and the mid-palm compartments. We look at compartments, of course, particularly we look at the thena compartment, the hypothena compartment, the mid-palm spaces, for hand sepsis, but we look at it in a slightly different way. The thena compartment, for example, the small abductor pollicis brevis, the small flexor pollicis brevis, the opponent's pollicis, obviously, they all act on the thumb. The hypothena, which is the small abductor digiti minimi, the small flexor, which is the flexor digiti minimi brevis, and the opponent's digiti minimi all act on the little finger, so-called. Now, I hate to say it, but all of this is embryology. And I want to state at the outset, uh, I think I may have said it before, that if when we're studying anatomy, we know a little embryology, then we already know quite a lot of anatomy. Unfortunately, it doesn't work the other way around. But it's vital for us to understand a little bit of embryology. It makes the study of anatomy that much easier. And it means that the embryology we need to know is then the critical or relevant embryology. I will be including later this year some embryology podcasts. There's one on the face, really, and the head and neck, which I promised that I would do, which I will do this year. Uh, There'll be some on the limbs as well uh, and on myotones. Now, for what it's worth, the limb forms as a stepwise process where myogenic progenitor cells forming the somites become primary myotomes. There's a second wave from dermomyotomes that then form embryonic myoblasts, which then proliferate and fuse to form primary muscle fibres. Now, this whole thing is a little more complicated than that, of course, but if we know a little bit about limb bud formation, we understand a lot about upper limb anomalies, 
which occurs in about 1 in 500 births. What's interesting about this is that the upper limb is genetically programmed very early on in fetal development, somewhere between the fourth and the eighth, week, eighth weeks. And that's actually limb anomalies as, as such, and not rare stuff. Congenital hand anomalies are second only to congenital heart defects in their incidence, and both, that is the limb bud and the heart, are regulated by a common gene, TBX5. So that explains a little bit why that's the case. We won't go into all of the theories here or the experimentation in animals with limb differentiating proteins, nor into the specialised epithelia like the apical ectodermal ridge or the progress zone or the zone of polarising activity. There will be people who'll know a little bit about that, maybe some plastic surgical um, uh, trainees who've got an interest in this kind of thing. But if anyone wants me to do a separate podcast on this, you can let me know on our Facebook site, which is Anatopod, uh, and I'm happy to do so. I don't use uh, Twitter, but people can also let me know if they want me to start a Twitter site or a Twitter handle. We haven't been using that. We may think about using that for interactive um, blogging this year. Now, the spatial organisation of the upper limb is such that growth and differentiation occurs proximal to distal, anterior to posterior, and dorsal to ventral. That is, that it develops in three planes. The AP axis is the first to be defined, and that's followed by the dorsoventral axis, and then last by the proximal distal axis. Now, would that it would be so simple. The dorsoventral pathway is the WNT pathway. It expresses EN1 on the ventral ectoderm <coughs> and WNT7 on the dorsal ectoderm, so it's a complex protein expression. The AP differentiation is the separation, importantly, into the ulna and radial aspects, and it includes a range of marker proteins, 5-HH, GL13A, FGF10, MSX1, and so on. The proximodistal orientation does as it says, but it has different protein expressions, such as FGF8, FGF4, FGF2, and WNT3A. Now, it's the AP axis which I think is important because it forms anatomically for us the posterior mass in the future limb bud. So the ulna is actually postaxial and the radial is preaxial. It's kind of all we need to remember. I won't elaborate here except to say that this is divided into the development of the ulna and the little finger and the ring finger and the ulna half of the middle finger. And then the ulna two columns of the carpus. And that explains why there is that median ulna and radial split that we typically see and that allows us anatomically to separate out median and ulna nerve uh, lesions and so on. And um, it's actually the cornerstone of how we examine lesions of the median nerve and ulna nerve. And I'll rely on this heavily as we go later and apply the anatomy to the examination of some classic nerve lesions when we get down to the hand. The other zones, which are two and three, they develop the radial part of the middle finger and the index finger and the radius, the radial column of the carpus, and the thumb is really what's called zone three. So another point I can make is that this AP orientation does mean that the upper limb does actually rotate, which it does at about the seventh week. So the idea of it being absolutely flat, as I suggested before, is not quite true. So that the radial nerve is actually anteriorly placed 
and the ulnar nerve is posteriorly placed, as we know. The ulnar nerve enters, of course, the posterior aspect of the forearm by penetrating the medial intermuscular septum of the arm, and the radial nerve comes from behind to penetrate the lateral intermuscular septum, and it comes briefly into the anterior aspect of the forearm. And this explains because of that rotation, so I wasn't being honest about saying it's an absolutely flat association compared to the lower limb. Because of that rotation, that explains why the ulnar nerve moving medially runs posteriorly, representing the postaxial part of the limb. The radial nerve moving anteriorly through the lateral intermuscular septum represents the anterior axial aspect of the limb. So it's a, a, we're just broadly talking about the limbs and why the, there are these particular structures. And now we're actually starting to understand it a little bit. But I did say that it is complex. And this rotation, of course, explains why the radial structures in the upper limb are lateral and the ulnar structures are medial. But that's also true about the medial ulnar structures coming off the medial cord of the brachial plexus. So they're all interconnected. The dorsoventral differentiation has the so-called glabrous palmar skin on it and the dorsal hairy skin. The neural plate, put very simply, sends out motor and sensory nerves to the limb bud during the third week with the brachial plexus formed by about the fourth week and that then ingrows into the limb bud. So this so-called growth cone gets to the elbow by about the fifth week and to the hand by about the seventh week. The vessels also did the same with the brachial artery continuing as the interosseous artery by the fifth week and the median artery, which is the axial vessel of the limb, supplying the median nerve. The radial artery is then the last to form. So one of the arteries that we can see in the upper limb that is the axial vessel of that limb is the median artery, and that's supplying the median nerve. It's often a small vessel running on the median nerve. The same thing, of course, exists in the lower limb. There's a little companion artery that runs down on the back of the sciatic nerve. And whenever you do an above-knee amputation, it always bleeds. You've got to uh, ligate that little artery. And that companion artery is actually a branch of the inferior gluteal, but it too is the vestigial axial artery or remnant of the axial artery of the lower limb. And it's given sometimes a very fancy name because the sciatic nerve is part of the ischiatic compartment. It used to be called the ischiatic nerve because this is a companion artery. Um, it's a uh, 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 to a nerve, it was given a Latin term that we learnt it as the arteria nervi comitans ischiadici. So the point being that all of this is in a sense embryology. There's a similar axial vessel of the lower limb, a little vestigial remnant of the inferior gluteal, and there's an axial vessel of the upper limb, a little remnant of the median artery, which is part of the... Um, uh, ultimately the common interosseous. The arm is, of course, supplied by the subclavian artery, which transitions into the axillary artery around the pectoralis minor, so it gets a different name, and it then transitions into the brachial artery at the lower border of the teres major. And we need to know these very specifically because they're typical questions that are asked. When is it subclavian artery? What are the different parts of the subclavian artery? When is it the axillary artery? what is it, the different parts of the axillary artery and why is that important and when is it the brachial artery. And these things are important too, of course, when you're coming to operate on somebody with an embolus 
and uh, uh, you need to know particularly the exposure of those arteries and the points of those arteries to define what you're dealing with. Um, so these are transitions and, of course, the brachial artery splitting into the radial and ulna. Drainage, venous drainage, is not symmetrical, but it's via the cephalic, basilic and brachial veins coming back to the subclavian vein. Now, the branches of the thoracochromial artery, which come from the second portion of the axillary artery, are cat's pee all day, if you want to remember that as a mnemonic, clavicular, pectoral, axillary and deltoid branches. They empty into the cephalic vein, their equivalent veins, the cephalic, pectoral, axillary and deltoid branches, and not into the axillary vein or the subclavian vein. And that setup, of course, is identical to that of the lower limb, where the branches of the femoral artery, which are the superficial epigastric artery, the superficial circumflex iliac artery, the superficial and deep external pudendal arteries, all have their venous tributaries, superficial circumflex iliac vein, superficial and deep external pudendal veins, superficial epigastric vein, all of those veins drain into the long saphenous, or the great saphenous, if you prefer that term, and not into the femoral vein. So it's exactly the same situation in the upper limb and lower limb. Of course, that latter anatomy is critical in the successful surgery of the lower limb uh, for varicose veins, for saphenofemoral ligation. The right extremity, of course, drains its lymphatics in the upper limb into the right lymphatic duct, ultimately, and the left into the thoracic duct. Regarding the innervation, the brachial plexus, of course, just like the pectoralis minor, may be prefixed or postfixed. It normally comprises the ventral primary rami of C5, 6, 7, 8, and T1. The anterior muscles receive their innervation from the musculocutaneous nerve. It's a pretty well-named nerve, and its lower limb equivalent is the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. We used to call that the old posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh. And so this has a muscular and cutaneous element. And then, of course, there's the median and ulnar nerves. The posterior muscles of the upper limb are innervated by the auxiliary and radial nerves, part of the posterior cord. I'll be going into the brachial plexus in the next podcast. Um, sorry, the, the one after the next. The musculocutaneous, obviously, this is the nerve in the upper limb, has C5-6, or more commonly C5-6-7 nerve roots, the median nerve C5 to T1, the ulnar nerve typically C8 to T1, but it does get a cross-reference of C7 uh, from the lateral cord for the innervation of the flexor carpi ulnaris. Uh, and if that happens in the forearm, it's called a Martin-Gruber connection. So there's a connection between the median and ulnar nerves in the forearm. And the auxiliary nerve, of course, forms from C5 and 6, the radial from C5 through to T1. There are collateral nerves uh, of the brachial plexus, and we'll be going through these in greater detail. The dorsal scapula, the long thoracic, the suprascapula, the lateral and medial pectorals, the upper and lower subscapulas, the thoracodorsals, and then there's the me- thoracodorsal, the, then there's the medial cutaneous nerve of the arm and forearm. Okay, again, so who cares? Well, the entire cutaneous sensation of the upper limb is formed by the brachial plexus. There are two additional points where sensation of the upper limb is not from the brachial plexus. 
Can you guess where? Well, one is the skin over the cape area of the shoulder, and that's dragged part of the cervical plexus down over the arm in front of the lateral uh, uh, area to form the supraclavicular nerves, and that's C234. So that has pulled the area down from the cervical plexus to cover the upper part of the shoulder, the so-called cape area of the shoulder, and that's cervical plexus supplying the very upper part of cutaneous sensation of the upper limb. The other is a bit less obvious, and it's over the floor of the axilla, and it runs to the medial aspect of the arm as the intercostobrachial nerve. Uh, we'll consider this later when we talk about the axilla, but that's really only a collateral branch of the second intercostal nerves. We'll go into the intercostal nerves in greater detail in their basic structure or infrastructure. But the collateral branch of the second intercostal nerve runs out through the intercostal margin, straight through the floor of the axilla into the medial aspect of the arm, and that's the intercostobrachial nerve. That nerve is, of course, of importance in preservation in axillary lymphadenectomy. Uh, and it does innovate some of the cutaneous aspect of the medial part of the upper arm. Now, why we need such a high degree of medial cutaneous innovation, that nerve, the intercostobrachial nerve, the medial cutaneous nerve of the arm, the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm, is a little bit mysterious. But it should also be stated uh, in our introduction that the axial digit in the hand is the middle finger, more correctly, the middle finger of the third digit, and in the lower limb, it is the second digit. Other points worth considering in our introduction is, of course, there are eight carpal bones organised into a proximal and a distal row. Proximal bones from radial to ulna are the scaphoid, lunate, triquetrum and pisiform. From radial to ulna, the distal row consists of the trapezium, the trapezoid, the capitate and the hamate. There are five metacarpal bones, 14 phalanx bones. Digits two to five have a proximal, intermediate and distal phalanx, whereas the thumb, of course, only has a proximal and distal phalanx. So that's our basic start. And what I'm going to do is cover in these podcasts AUL1, which is really um, the next one. I've called this AUL1 the introduction, but there's a real AUL1 which is the pectoral girdle, AUL2, the anatomy of the axilla and the breast, including axillary dissection, AUL3, the brachial plexus, including injury, um, AUL4, the shoulder, including the sternoclavicular and acromioclavicular joints, AUL5, the anatomy of the arm, AUL6, the cubital fossa, the elbow, the flexor and extensor forearm compartments. That seems a bit big, so we might have to split that. AUL7, the hand and wrist, we may split that as well. AUL8, the upper limb neurology revised, including nerve lesions and their examination. And AUL9, the upper limb osteology revisited. Uh, it might not work exactly like that, although those are all the topics that we're going to be covering in subsequent podcasts they may get of such size that I might have to split them. Now, some of these areas are quite large. They might be split because it's often impossible, I think, on these more intense podcasts to really concentrate. There's a point, I think, where you can simply get too much information and we'll know this and, acknowledgement, and acknowledge it, I think, when we hit that wall. 
I want along the way to also emphasise variations and the surgical and operative anatomy. And I don't want to alienate our radiologic friends or any others for that matter, but a lot of the limb anatomy is also about surgical approaches. So I'm going to try and point out why some of the specific anatomy is surgically relevant, whether it be to expose bones or to expose vessels in particular. Um, before we go uh, off um, into this particular area, I'm going to add a, a bone at the end of this, uh, and so we might as well discuss the clavicle. Next one, we'll add the scapula at the end of the podcast. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of music, and then we'll have the clavicle at the end. some relevant osteology and we'll begin with the clavicle. The design of the bone is quite unique and it affects its fracturing. The medial two-thirds is convex in arc and is so shaped in order to provide room for the transition of the neurovascular bundle to the upper limb. Um, the lateral one-third is flatter, it's concave in its sweep and its most lateral part is very smooth in its upper surface. I'd recommend if you've got a clavicle to follow me along as you're going through this by looking at it. As a subcutaneous bone, it's crossed by the supraclavicular nerves and sometimes there's a crossing communicating vein uh, at this point between the external jugular vein and the cephalic vein. The parts of the bone are its shaft, its medial or sternal end and its lateral or acromial end. Now, broadly, the sternal end has a facet for the disc of the sternoclavicular joint, but there's an articular surface which extends inferiorly there for articulation with the first costal cartilage, if you look at that. The shaft shows a small entry point of a nutrient artery, which is a branch of the suprascapular artery. The medial border has the attachment of the sternocleidomastoid and the trapezius, uh, which attaches to the flat lateral surface on the posterior part of the shaft. On the upper surface of the shaft, the flat lateral third gives an attachment to the deltoid muscle, so that the trapezius is at the back of the bone and the deltoid is at the front, as you'd expect. And that's when viewed from the top of the bone, so that if you have a clavicle in your hand and you then turn it upside down, this becomes more obvious. It's best, as I've said, if you've got a clavicle, because without it, my point is conceptually a little hard to appreciate. The anterior middle part of the clavicle has the pectoralis major attachment, which in some cases leaves very slight ridges, as this part of the pectoralis major is entirely muscular. The clavicle, I've said, is the intervening bone of the clavipectoral fascia. Now, if you turn the bone over, there are some characteristic marks underneath. Lateral to the articular surface is a pit for the attachment of the costoclavicular ligament. That's a thick, elevated ridge. 
that is so distinctive and it would allow you obviously to side a clavicle blindfold. And that leads into a groove or more correctly a divot for the subclavius muscle. And laterally you can often see, as I've said, a nutrient foramen. As we move laterally, there's a conoid tubercle which is attached to the posterior lip of the subclavius groove for the attachment of the conoid ligament. And that area is usually separate from the coracoid process. But within, there, within that ligament, there can be a formal synovial articulation between the two bones. As you pass laterally from this conoid tubercle, there's a roughened trapezoid ridge which runs obliquely across the bone in a gentle arc running towards the articular facet, and that's the attachment of the trapezoid ligaments. So this arrangement means that the clavicle breaks between the costoclavicular and coracoclavicular ligaments, which is how it works biomechanically. Like the sternoclavicular or acromioclavicular joints, or even like the costovertebral attachments of the ribs when we get into the thorax, the articular surfaces here are very, very small so that the integrity of the joint, maintaining its position without it getting subluxed or dislocated, is done by very, very strong ligaments. That's how the sternoclavicular joint works. That's how the acromioclavicular joint works. That's how the, um, uh, the uh, costovertebral joints work as well. The classic point to say is this, that the first... Uh, thing about the clavicle uh, is that it is the first bone to ossify and it ossifies by intramembranous ossification. These are pretty typical sort of questions that you can be asked on any exam. There are actually two centres which rapidly fuse with elongation of the bone at its sternal end and there's an epiphysis here which appears in the late teens and which fuses by skeletal maturity around about 25 in most people. And it is the bone, the clavicle, with the longest ossification time in the body. 80% of adult clavicular length is achieved by the age of 12 in males and by the age of 9 in females. In a little more detail, the clavicle serves as the sole bone that connects the axial skeleton to the shoulder girdle, forming the sternoclavicular joint medially and the acromioclavicular joint laterally and it assists the full range of motion of the shoulder joint. It's an interesting bone, actually, with archaeologists using it in their evolutionary descriptions. Forensic scientists use it to explain handedness and gender. The management of fractures, I think, about clavicles is interesting also because that's progressed to a much more interventional style, with clavicle fractures representing uh, between 2 to 12% of all fractures um, uh, middle third fractures accounting for about 80% of all clavicular fractures because of the biomechanics of what we said before. Fractures of the lateral and medial one-third of the clavicle account for about 15% and 5% of clavicular fractures, respectively. The diaphysial fracture, the typical diaphysial fracture, is the one that's more likely to be displaced, and that increases with its displacement the risk of non-union shoulder dysfunction and residual pain uh, when conservative management is used. And we used to use conservative management all the time with no evidence to suggest that these kind of figure of eight bandages were any better than a, a simple sling. 
But now most of these clavicular fractures are being treated operatively. Uh, and there's this move towards more surgical uh, management um, in relation to this clavicular anatomy because there is this higher risk of non-union, some malunion as well, certainly shoulder dysfunction, and the big one of residual pain. Um, I don't need to go into it because I'm not an expert uh, in this subject, but 3D morphometric studies have shown significant differences between the genders in the measured clavicular length and curvature. For those who are interested in that, there's a nice article by Amit Bernat on a 3D cadaveric study from Antwerp in 2014 in Clinical Anatomy. But the anatomy leads to fractures, as you can see in a way, and there are several basic sort of bullet points that we can say. The point of fracture is the narrowest part. The clavicle is the only anterior strut to lateral compressive forces. The middle third is vulnerable to compressive forces running through its long axis in biomechanical studies. The fall from a height and the kind of protective move of putting your arm out is how that gets fractured. It's accompanied at the point uh, by a significant reduction in bone density right at that point. So that's a point of particular mechanical weakness. Clavicles in men are longer, wider and thicker than in women and they've been suggested as important uh, factors in um, particular personalised fixation techniques. Right clavicles have a greater medial depth, particularly in women, for what that's worth. Clavicles in men have a greater lateral depth. The left clavicle is typically about one to four millimetres longer than the right but the right is more robust. The female sternal angles are larger. Left clavicles are wider at most intervals of length and left clavicles, as I've said, are longer in general. Up to 28% of uh, people have clavicular asymmetry of greater than about five millimetres, which is of relevance when using, for example, contralateral clavicular length as a baseline in the assessment of shortening after a fracture. The acromioclavicular joint represents only 12% of shoulder injuries, but there's a higher incidence, as we know, in contact sports. There are rare anomalies related to the clavicle, and these, uh, these include hypoplasia or partial or complete absence of the clavicle, part of an hereditary condition called cleidocranial dysostosis, with anomalies of dentition, facial bones, thoracic and pelvic shape. And there are rarely bifid clavicle supernumerary and so-called pseudarthritic, where there's a pseudarthrosis of the clavicle. The presence of paresthesia of the arm or a vascular injury with a clavicular fracture indicates something pretty serious, usually a scapulothoracic disarticulation and a much more severe thoracic injury in the polytrauma course, a, a, a case. So the... Um, point that I want to make about it, these are little bullet points about the clavicle to remember that have clinical significance based on their anatomy. Concerning the mid-shaft fractures, as I've said, there's a greater trend towards surgery. Revisiting the anatomy has resulted in a much higher rate of internal fixation with, uh, for example, greater than two centimetre clavicular shortening, displacement, all of these affecting non-union. And uh, so th these are indications to uh, internally fix. And of the non-union cases, about 85% of those people have pain and difficulty lifting, heavy lifting particularly, 
There's a landmark Canadian Orthopaedic Trauma Society uh, study in 2007, COTS study, and that showed that uh, uh, these were guidelines really for internal fixation. Um, complications in that study and adverse events were reported. They included non-union, malunion that required further treatment, dehiscence and wound infection for those cases that were managed operatively, hardware irritation from superficial plates that required removal, complex regional pain syndromes, surgery for uh, impending uh, problems, transient brachial plexus problems, acromioclavicular, sternoclavicular joint abnormalities, mechanical failures, all complications. And their complication rates at one year were 37% in the operative group, but 63% in the non-operative group. So uh, it's an interesting study to look at. So the anatomy, uh, our understanding of anatomy, has slightly changed towards... Um, um, internal fixation to using uh, typically the subcutaneous plates more commonly than intramedullary uh, wire or nail fixation. Um, our next uh, podcast is going to be on the uh, pectoral girdle. Um, before that, as I've said, if uh, there are those who are interested in supporting an atopod, uh, they can do so uh, by visiting patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, all in capital letters, A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D. Simple, really. Once, if you pledge something, you pledge as much as you wish. Uh, I'm obviously very grateful for that, uh, for the uh, price of a cup of coffee a month. If you're finding these anatomy uh, podcasts useful, you can be an affiliate and uh, I'll, I'll give you some sort of shout-out on our podcast. Uh, for those who want to contribute a bit more, $10 or so a month, that would be useful to become one of our guardian angels, and you can let me know what special topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, and I will do it. Um, anatomy, history of anatomy, whatever you wish. We've added the anatomy cupboard, and that'll be done each month. Uh, there's some interesting stories about the history of anatomy to listen to. For a bit more, you can become an Anatopod Templar and I'll send you an e-copy of uh, uh, my book, The Figurative Life of the Cadaver, on the history of dissection. And there's an upcoming book on the history uh, of the social impact, actually, of uh, an infectious disease. The first one of these is syphilis. The second one is tuberculosis. The third is malaria. And the fourth is the Black Death. And um, the first and second have been done. The third and fourth are being done. So um, I hope these are helpful uh, for the upper limb. Um, uh, please let me know on our uh, Anatopod Facebook or now Meta site as it's called, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.